I'm Mario Munoz reporting for the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service. According to wine entrepreneur and New York Times best-selling author Craig Hall, the business climate in Texas is excellent. I gotta tell you, there's a big difference between the business climate in California and the business climate in Texas. And um, it's a pleasure to be a Texan. It's a pleasure to have a business climate like we have in Texas. And both from a tax standpoint, there's encouragement, but also from just a business climate standpoint, Texas, in my view, is in for great growth over the next uh, probably 20 years. As far as I can see, I'm just very, very excited and bullish on Texas. And I think uh, a lot of other states are going to be sending uh, some of their finest to us and we'll take them and um, it's going to be a, a great thing. So I'm, I'm very bullish on Texas. A private, independent, nonprofit community development financial institution called Lift Fund provides credit and services to small businesses and entrepreneurs who do not have access to loans from commercial sources. Recently, Lift Fund CEO and founder Janie Barrera featured entrepreneur and best-selling author Craig Hall in a webinar. Welcome to Lift Fund's virtual series for 2021. My name is Dan Yoxall, Vice President of Community Relations and Development at Lift Fund. Please note that if you have questions during the event, you can ask the question in the chat. We're excited that you've joined us today. Our guest entrepreneur, New York Times bestselling author and founder and chair of the Hall Group, Craig Hall. Craig assisted Lift Fund to celebrate its 20th anniversary in Dallas, serving small business owners across North Texas in 2019. And through his 2020 donations to Revive Dallas, providing relief grants deployed by Lift Fund through the Communities Foundation of Texas and the Dallas Entrepreneur Center Network. He is a prolific author on topics that range from responsible entrepreneurism, real estate investing, creating a 21st century winery, and his latest bestseller, Boom, Bridging the Opportunity Gap to Reignite Startups. Craig's November op-ed in the Dallas Morning News about small businesses being the solution to rebuilding the U.S. economy inspired today's topic. The link can be found in the chat. Leading the conversation today with Craig is Lift Fund's CEO and President Jenny Barrera. Jenny was Lift Fund's founding and first employee 27 years ago in San Antonio when she was tapped to lead Texas's first community development financial institution, then known as Axion. Today is Lift Fund's CEO and President. Janie leads a nonprofit of more than 100 employees that provides access to capital and technical services in 15 states. Janie, welcome. Thank you, Dan, and thank you, Craig, for joining us. I understand, Craig, that you are in Hawaii at the moment, and so <laughs> 6 a.m. for you right now. So I, I, I really do appreciate the time that you're spending with us today. Janie, I don't think anyone will feel sorry for me being in Hawaii. True, true, true. You know, but uh, I was saying to you earlier that that's on my bucket list for one day. So I hope to, to see you there uh, one day. I know you're also flying back today. So I, you're, you're uh, back to Dallas. So it's going to be very busy for you. But, you know, Craig, before I, uh, we get into our conversation, I just wanted to share a little bit about Lift Fund and, and our philosophy about that we believe in entrepreneurship and that entrepreneurship is a way to create jobs 
build assets that can transform families and communities. We work with business owners who have historically and financially been marginalized and held back from pursuing their dreams. These include women, people of color, and veterans. The past year has been an extraordinary one for small businesses, our nation, and the work that we do here at Lift Fund. We have endured a global pandemic, an economic shutdown that impacted small businesses. We have also experienced economic and social justice issues that continue to this day. We have record unemployment and even experienced a historic storm that froze Texas for a week. Here at Lift Fund, we have learned to pivot like many other businesses in order to continue moving forward. In a typical year prior to COVID, Lift Fund would lend about $30 million in loans to about 1,000 people across our footprint. In 2020 alone, we made $38 million in loans and an additional $45 million in grants to over 4,000 small business owners. So this is a dramatic change for us in terms of the needs right now in our community. Just as important as the access to credit is also the technical assistance. So last year we were able to help more than 4,600 small business owners and we did it all online. Little did we know that we would entertain this kind of interaction before. If one of Lift Fund's uh, employees would have said to me in February of 2020, can I work from home? I would have said, absolutely not. And now 90% of our employees are, are working from home. And I'd like to share three points too that I think is important for, the, for, for folks to know about Lift Fund. And that is that not only the, the loans in, uh, and the technical assistance, but the programs, for example, in Dallas, we're part of the Revive program, which we want this, that, whole, that whole program is to revive um, small businesses. And, you know, that's something that Craig is involved in as well. And in San Antonio, we created a cohort called Helm, where we named it Helm because we want our small business owners to be at the helm. So it's an, it's an accelerator that we've created with a wraparound approach, access to capital, mentoring, training, and community building. So we're, we're encouraging everyone to come and visit these small businesses. And third, we've launched several new products and services such as Level 5 that, partner, that we partner with banks and other CDFIs to provide prospective clients uh, a way for them to reach us and to find out, are they credit worthy right now? So these are just some of the few things that we are working on. But the real reason you all are here is not, is only, is not, to hear, not only to hear about Lift Fund, but to listen and to learn from Craig. We are so excited to have Craig joining us today. He's such an accomplished man and such a philanthropist as well. And we're, we're, I'm happy to say that he's part of the Lift Fund family. And so uh, something that you may not know the, in the audience is that he started out as a small business owner back in his teens. And, you know, he talks about his entrepreneurial journey in his books. But one of the first questions I want to ask you, Craig, you know, you've experienced the recessions, right? From the 80s, you know, you, there's been six, at least six different turndowns. How did you get through these and, and how do you continue to keep your business afloat? Well, that's a, a great subject for today. Um, before I get into that, let me just say uh, congratulations for all of uh, what Lift Fund has done. It's incredible. And uh, I'm, I hope you feel uh, a lot of uh, uh, 
personal uh, joy from it. I'm sure you do. You've really made a difference in so many lives. And Lift Fund is a, uh, an incredible uh, organization. And uh, you are a, a true entrepreneur of uh, great uh, stature. Now, downturns are when you really um, learn the most and when uh, you're tested. And uh, the first thing that uh, we always uh, look at, and it, it didn't, it, this sounds very obvious and very simple, but is liquidity. If you don't, if you run out of the ability to make your payroll, you're out of business. And um, uh, so keeping cash, as soon as you see a downturn coming, now we're toward, kind of toward, toward the end of uh, the pandemic downturn, but, but still liquidity is everything. Cash flow is the second thing I look at. Uh, and I constantly, in fact, in terms of liquidity and cash flow, we literally look at those all the time. Every day we know we do, um, we know what, where, where our liquidity is, what it is in all of our businesses. And on a cash flow basis, when there's a downturn, we do everything we can to stop cash going out and increase cash coming in. It sounds very simple. The third thing, which is the most important maybe is relationships because business uh, is all about uh, people. And um, if you are in a tight spot and you um, change and you don't show, people show their true colors. And if you have integrity and you have problems, you can get through them. If you try to take shortcuts and you think you're gonna outsmart somebody else, uh, you're gonna likely not get through it. And I think um, the most important thing is to be transparent and uh, uh, honest with people. And that that's, you know, you can have really rough times and people will help you. But if you're not uh, open and transparent, uh, it will hurt you. And uh, ultimately, I think relationships are, are really critical for, for any, any survival of down, downturns. So those are, you know, liquidity, cash flow, and relationships. That's it. You know, and that last part about the relationships, you know, that's been my experience as well during this year of 2020, 2021, uh, working with small businesses, because, you know, when they were shut down, now what do you do, right? So it's, it's by being open and transparent, you know, all these things that went on to GoFundMe, you know, helping small businesses, wanting to make sure that these neighborhood businesses stayed open. I don't know. Did you, did you experience that as well? Well, I, I think it's been a terribly tough time for a lot of small businesses. And, and um, when you uh, talk to someone as, as uh, I, I did not long ago, who um, had a 21 year uh old business that uh, she had started on kind of a, a main street in a uh, town that we do business in. And, and um, it was a nail salon. She did pedicures and manicures mm -hmm. and her landlord didn't work with her and she ended up uh, out of business and it breaks my heart. And the truth is we have done a pretty good job as a government helping, but government can't solve every problem. And this is a very, uneven, unfair time. There are businesses that have done better, not because they were smart, but they were in a certain type of area that, well, like if you were in the Zoom business, you're, you've done really well this last yeah. year. Uh, um, but if you're um, a nail salon uh, that has been in business 21 years, it's 
might be the last year. And the sad thing is, um, for many people, it's hard to come back. And, and I, I um, uh, you know, I just would say to people, you know, hang in there and get through it. And uh, um, things are getting better. We're at the end of this and, and we're, I think we're in for a much, much better time uh, very, very soon. It's, it's happening. You know, um, you recently wrote in the Dallas Morning News that the op-ed, and I want to quote something here. It says, for the past few decades, American policies have prioritized big business over small, and the result is industry consolidation, less competition, and an economic system stacked against independent business owners. What do you mean by st- the stack system? What, you know, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, first of all, I think um, a lot of our uh, legislation and things that uh, uh, government does uh, are based on lobbyists. And uh, if you're a uh, big business, you've got lobbyists working for you. And if you're a medium-sized business, you've got associations that have lobbyists. Um, unfortunately, small businesses are out working. They don't have time. Uh, entrepreneurs are, uh, are busy. They don't have time to uh, go uh, spend with uh, congressmen or senators and tell them uh, the facts of life. And for that very sheer reason, but also just in general, there seems to be in every industry I see a real consolidation. And um, I think that we lose a lot as a country when we um, have everything get bigger and bigger. Uh, It may be more efficient in some uh, ways and that uh, has some benefits to standard living. But but in terms of our society, I think having um, more independent businesses uh, provides a a strong network of of, people. citizens that really care about their communities and citizens that care about our country. And, um, you know, I'm not against anyone growing. I, I enjoy growing my businesses and we're, um, trying to get bigger and bigger, but, um, I'm really against unfair, unlevel playing fields. And I think that the, um, larger companies can be pretty predatory towards smaller companies. And uh, I'm, I'm concerned about that as a trend. Uh, our, our country has had a number of trends that have been pretty bad for small business. We, we uh, on the world stage, uh, we're not the entrepreneurial country that we were 30, 40 years ago. And that, that's a big concern. So, so let's talk a little bit about that, Craig. I mean, you know, you're, what these trends that you're seeing, how are, are, should you, are things should be stopped? You know, how do we start? I mean, what are these barriers that you see for these small businesses specifically? Well, in, 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 uh, on the world stage, uh, I think there's like 190 countries that the World Bank studies every year for ease of starting a new business. And um, when I started looking at those statistics, uh, the World Bank had the U.S. in, in 35 or so Today, it's, we are the 55th uh, in terms of ease of starting new business. There's 54 countries that are easier or better to start a new business. We should be number one, not, not number 55. And um, that rates 
everything from the paperwork involved in starting a new business to um, raising capital and how easy or difficult it is. Uh, you know, there aren't enough lift funds out there. There, there. You know, I think you would uh, uh, probably agree that it'd be nicer to have more, more than fewer. And um, unfortunately, we don't talk enough about it, uh, and we don't have enough emphasis at a policy level, um, and 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 at a, uh, a just society level. I, I think uh, people take things for granted that they shouldn't take for granted. It's it's. Uh, it's important to care about uh, startups, and uh, there's different kinds of startups. There's there's startups that raise a billion dollars and they have a high technology idea, biotech. That's not what I'm talking about. There's other startups that uh, are important uh, employers, important community members, and they may be uh, one restaurant or they may become a chain of restaurants. Uh, Either way, they're contributing a lot to society. And we as a country need to celebrate them, need to um, encourage them, need to thank them. And uh, that's kind of my, my view. Um, I, I've been really fortunate to um, have grown up in a country that allowed me to, to, to do the things I've done. And I'm, I'm grateful every day. Well, yeah, I mean, that's how you started, right? I mean, you started with a small house. Your college. I, I, yeah, I actually, um, uh, as as you kind of mentioned earlier, I, I when I my parents did not have uh, money. They were both uh, World War II uh, veterans, and they came back. And um, I grew up in what I call lower middle income, mm-hmm. and uh, I saved uh, money from odd jobs as a teenager. And uh, by the time I was uh, 17, I had uh, $4,000 that I had saved. And I um, believe that the uh, students at the University of Michigan were getting a a bad deal from the landlord. That was my uh, belief from newspaper articles and things like that. And so I wanted to not make a lot of money and get rich. I wanted to prove a point that you could be a, a good guy landlord. You could uh, operate and own a rooming house uh, and do it in a manner that the people who rented from you uh, were well taken care of and felt good. It was, it was sort of a idealistic uh, theory. And uh, nothing wrong with that. No, nothing wrong with that. And, and anyway, so I bought a place. Um, I spent uh, gee, about 10 months looking and I was 18, um, just graduating from high school. And I, and I bought a rooming house uh, with the entire $4,000 as a down payment. It was $27,250 uh, 427 Hamilton place. I remember it like yesterday. Yep. And um, I uh, had uh, an apartment on the first floor in the basement and eight rooms on the second, third floor and a common bathroom and a common kitchen. And I would go there every day and clean the bathroom and clean the kitchen. And uh, it was uh, it was a, 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 an educational experience uh, and a lot of fun, and that's that, that that's how I got started many many years ago. Yeah, and and you know just look where you are now, right? But, but it was those examples, right? That that example you just gave us was your beginning, and that really brought up then your true entrepreneurship, um, you know, um, motivation. Uh, I remember my very first entrepreneurship it was uh, when I when I. Now I re- reflect back on it. 
Um, I was about 10 or 11 years old. I saw one of those bikes that just come out and you and I are probably around the same age. And, you know, remember those banana seat bikes uh, with the big handlebars? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. I wanted one of those. And ma, and I said to my mom and she says, no, you've got a decent twin in the garage. You don't need another bicycle. I said, mom, if I, uh, if I go, can, if I get the money, can I buy, uh, buy that bike? And she said, sure. How are you going to get it? And I said, I'm going to make myself some raffle tickets and I'm going to raffle off my old bike. And um, I, that's what I did. I went around the neighborhood, you know, those days you could sell raffle tickets. I got on the bus and I would ride around the bus and sell uh, tickets on the bus to folks. And uh, I eventually got the money to buy my, my bike. And so, you know, to your point, you've got to, you know, find, you have to have, you know, that saying where there's a will, there's a way, right? So entrepreneurs have that will uh, to keep on going. Jeannie, that's very clever. I, ho- I hope you still have your bike. I, oh, of uh, course not. I, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't. Um, well, you know, yeah. uh, so after my first building, I had no money left. And I, I, I was surprised. I found it was really fun. It was um, uh, kind of perverse sort of fun. But I, I, I loved um, all the uh, aspects of, of owning this building, this little house. And so I found a second one I wanted to buy, but I had no money. So I went to students at the University of Michigan and I said, if you give me $200, I'll give you a partnership interest in this building that we're going to buy together. And then if it does well, I'll give you your money back and then I'll get 25% and you get 75% pro rata. And I raised $3,000 and that was the down payment on the second building. Incredible. Yeah. And and from there, over about 17 years, I raised um, a little over a billion dollars in equity. Uh, and um, before I was in my mid-30s, I had about $4 billion of, uh, of apartments. We had 72,000 apartments across the United States. And I'll Just, I mean, that same idea, yeah. only, only the $200 became $100,000 or more per investor. And um, yeah. the... Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it proves the fact that, you know, what you said earlier about relationships, you know, when you went to those students, it was because they knew you and they could trust you. And yeah, they were willing to give you the $200, right, to invest in. in uh, well, in- the, the biggest thing about relationships were, uh, you know, so I told you the good time here. So 18 years of good time in the mid 1980s. Um, by then we had moved up, my company started in Michigan, we had moved to Texas. And um, if anyone thinks that the last year has been tough, the mid 1980s uh, for anything real estate related uh, was much tougher than any time I can think of in history. I mean, I wasn't around in the 1930s, but from everything I can tell, uh, it, it was not as bad as the 1980s uh, in Texas and elsewhere. And uh, we, um, we went through just immense problems. But again, our investors uh, stood by us. Our um, banks were mixed. Some, some were not so friendly and some were, were terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, you really do learn a lot. Uh, and that was actually a downturn that I would say started in 1985, 1986, and went all the way into the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, I look back and every day I, uh, you know, it was just a survival thing. It was every day 
And I had uh, very smart people who say that I should just walk away and start over. Um, and um, I'm glad I didn't. Uh, but, but uh, you know, t- times, you can't control a lot of variables. So times do get tough. The pandemic has been a very odd, difficult experience, but it is getting better. It's we're right there now and um, things will get better for everyone. I hope. Mm-hmm. You seem like you, it sounds like you you're very positive then of the next couple of years. I'm really positive. I, I think that we're um, maybe uh, to use a, an analogy, it's like the roaring 20s. You know, uh, uh, the last time we had a pandemic like this was 1918, 1919. And um, then we had what we call the roaring 20s, which, of course, ended badly in 1929. And I'm not predicting all of that. I, I, I don't uh, think anyone knows for sure what's going to happen from all the uh, uh, spending that we're doing at a policy level. But, but certainly the spending is going to uh, help create a, a, uh, an economy that's going to really boom for a while. I hope it booms in small business because uh, uh, the, just helping, um, uh, as I've said earlier, that bigger guys get bigger isn't uh, really the, the kind of world we uh, will all benefit from in the long run. Um, but I think there is, a, actually, I'm, I'm more optimistic today than I ever have been about small business. I think there's a uh, a real growing awareness of, uh, of the need to um, help small businesses get started. And, and I think there is, has been uh, some good policy things that have been done. And, and I think more are being done right now. So that's, that's an exciting time. Yeah. Great time for Lift Fund. Yeah, I, I want to give a plug here for Community Development Financial Institutions, CDFIs. Um, CDFIs have been around, you know, for over 30 years, and but we really have not come up to the radar before until these last 20, you know, 12, 18 months. And CDFIs, when you when you say that, I hope that the money that the that these small businesses um, grow, um, it's CDFIs who can help these small businesses grow, and it and we, I believe, and uh, it, that we are good stewards of the dollars that we are given that we inject into the community through small businesses. And, you know, like these revolving loan funds that we have, um, you know, we, we work with the folks that banks cannot work with because they're regulated and we have a 96% repayment rate. So, you know, we've, we've learned how to mitigate risk. We've learned how to work with communities and we've learned how to disperse this money, be good stewards of it, have the money come back so that we can keep revolving. And even in this administration, in this um, in this next round of funds, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure you're aware that for the PPP lending, uh, banks have run out of the money for PPP, but CDFIs are still uh, out there working with small businesses, uh, even to, as we speak uh, in this next round. And it's be, and um, and so we uh, CDFIs were allocated X amount of dollars for just CDFIs. And then the banks were allocated X amount of dollars. So I'm, I'm glad that we are partnering um, in the bigger, you know, in the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now that we're on the radar screen. So my question to you, because you've, you've, uh, you've um, already, you know, stated about the importance and the value of private and part public partnerships. Um, uh, I, I just gave you my, my reason. I think that's important. Why do you think it's important? 
Well, I think it's unrealistic to um, uh, say that the private sector can do it all on its own. I mean, we are uh, not, um, uh, we're a large economy and we're an economy that, that uh, has to have uh, public sector involvement. And, uh, you know, without um, the very um, uh, aggressive and quick actions of the public sector in the last uh, year, uh, we would really be in deep trouble. Uh, and uh, it's been, um, I think, impressive uh, to see a lot of things that have been done and um, more that are coming. Uh, so, you know, I, sometimes uh, people criticize government as being uh, uh, inefficient or, or uh, not the best stewards of, of how money's spent. But I think when they do it uh, through organizations like Lift Fund, and that's the way to do it. And uh, so that's that public-private um, working together and uh, a way that accomplishes a broader goal. And I think we're, we're really uh, doing the, we as a country are doing a pretty good job of that right now. And, you know, it's exciting um, as, as difficult as this time has been. Um, it, I think there are some good things coming out of it. And uh, um, we as a country um, uh, have done an amazing job of getting the vaccines out and getting the, the uh, health part of this uh, going in the right direction. Uh, and um, people are, are anxious to get back to uh, a new normal and it will be a new normal. There are some things that um, will be very different because of uh, COVID, but we'll see. But, it, but I, public private is a way to get a lot of things done. Yeah. You know, uh, the, the chairman of, of Lift Fund um, is a retired two-star general uh, army nurse and uh, now she works for an organization called WellMed. And uh, next Friday, talking about partnerships, uh, next Friday we are going to do a drive-through at the parking lot of Lift Fund in San Antonio um, uh, for people to come in and get a Johnson & Johnson shot. Uh, and um, we're going to make it a celebration, a happy hour, if you will, where uh, you can get your shot, your vaccine, wait your 15 minutes and then get a beer and a taco. So, I mean, that's a great, <laughs> great partnership that we put together for our community. And, you know, it, and people, you know, we, we want to reach that other half of our community that, that we haven't reached yet. That's great. I, I now I'm, I'm feeling uh, bad that I got my Moderna shot. I should have uh, come to San Antonio and, uh, Getting a beer and a taco. That's beer and a taco. Well, you come to San Antonio, Craig, and I'll get you a beer and a taco. There you go. All right. <laughs> so, um, you know, we've been talking about, yeah, there are these programs that have been in, uh, been instituted. What else? I mean, you talked a little bit about, you know, small businesses don't have the lobbyists that, that the bigger businesses have. Is there legislation that can be done? Is there something else in your mind that would equip small businesses for success that we are we don't have in place right now? Well, I think I think we should start with the whole idea of uh, if if I were um, uh, in Washington in a position that related to this, I'd be I'd be um, saying how how do we get from fifty five toward number one in terms of ease of starting a new business? And uh, it's not rocket science. There's a lot of uh, it's how you uh, 
what you have to do to fill out forms to become a business. It's what you uh, have to do to raise money and, and where money's uh, available. And the SBA has programs, but we're not as good as we should be. And uh, all those things, um, you know, at the end of the day, you have to have capital and you have to have uh, uh, a legal structure. But my goodness, the fact that we're 55th in the world is just, uh, uh, I'm incredulous about it. I think it's ridiculous. Uh, and uh, it's not any one law, but it's it's a recognition of the importance of small business and of startups. And I, I think uh, it's, it's and they're hand in hand. I mean, you can be a small business that isn't a startup because you've been around a long time. But I think that startups and new businesses uh, need to be more encouraged uh, from a legal and a practical financial standpoint than, than they are. Again, as I've said, the, the really big businesses, if you're in biotech in Boston or uh, Silicon Valley and uh, you've got a great idea for a unicorn startup, it's easier to raise that money than it is to raise a small amount of money and, and do a service business or something that really makes a difference in a community. And we need to change that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Craig, I think you're doing it already. Um in your own way, right? You're a successful businessman. You could be off, um, you know, retired, if you will. And, uh, and, but what you do is you give back and what you're doing is mentoring other small businesses. And it's that mentality, I believe that, um, that is, is multiplying because I know of others like you out there mm-hmm. who said, who have said, you know what, I've done it. I've made it. And I want to be able to share what I've learned with other people. And your books are doing that. And you're speaking to these, you know, um, businesses that are watching us today or listening to us today. You know, you, there's there there's a need for people like you. So what kind of advice would you hand over to these folks that are looking at us and listening to us today? What, just, what, are they, what should they really focus on right now, especially well, going through this, you know, I guess now opening up of doors just yesterday, we heard that we don't have to wear masks and so on. So there's going to be a lot of, you know, uh, opening up of doors now. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I think I have to be careful about some of my earlier comments. I'm glad you asked that. While I think there are challenges and problems, don't ever use those things as an excuse. The bottom line is um, if you've got a, a dream and an idea go for it and uh, um, and don't let barriers get in your way uh, but do it whatever your idea is whatever your business is um, do it with um, transparency integrity don't ever take shortcuts uh, they'll come back to haunt you just um, work hard there's I don't know any easy business I don't know any uh, I, I mean, I, 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 I guess some young uh, kids today on high tech can make uh, huge uh, fortunes overnight, but, but, but the things I have a little bit of understanding of are not that easy. And uh, I, I think it's just so rewarding and so great to have an opportunity to um, be uh, an entrepreneur. And I would encourage uh, anyone who has any thought about it, now's the time to do it in a sense the um, uh, pandemic has forced a lot of people to rethink their lives. And maybe this is a time to, to give something a shot. And, I, and more businesses are starting from 
uh, people who are not in their 20s now, but in their in their 40s and up than norm than in normal years. And um, I think that's a great thing. You're never too old, and uh, go for it. That's right. We are never too old. So you know, but when you started your um, your business back, you know, uh, when you were actually getting investors and so on at the $200 level. How did you maneuver uh, the whole legal system? Because when you talk about being the 55th, I mean, our country, I think that's one of the issues is all the paperwork, all the administrative things that small businesses have to know where to go and how to do it. So how did you get through the legal part of it? And then who did your accounting and how, you know, you're, you were one person, but I'm sure you had, you know, so, surrounded so, yourself with people. So, Janie, I'm, I'm glad you asked uh, those questions. I'll, I'll start with the accounting. Um, to this day, you would, uh, people that know me uh, well would tell you that uh, I'm not a terribly uh, uh, good financial accounting type person. I used to, uh, I, I couldn't, I remember when I hired my first employee, but for the longest period of time, my living room was my office. And it was a small living room. And I literally had uh, bills that, you know, would come in and I'd put them in a box and I'd look at them every once in a while. And whenever there was any money, I'd try to figure out which ones needed to be paid. But that was my accounting system. And uh, it wasn't uh, too sophisticated. Uh, my legal system was uh, pretty equally unsophisticated. I couldn't afford a lawyer. So I uh, would write up agreements, you know, on a yellow pad and here's the deal. And as uh, I grew and I had more and more investors, one day I got a call um, from um, someone and uh, he said, um, my name is Hugh Makins. And I said, hi, who are you? And, uh, you know, he said, I'm the uh, director of the Michigan Securities Bureau. And so that's nice. What is that? And he said, uh, you know, I've heard that you're illegally selling securities. <clears throat> I said, what do you mean illegally doing what? And um, so anyway, he, uh, he invited me to get a lawyer <laughs> and to come up. Uh, I, I lived in uh, Ann Arbor and Michigan and, and uh, the uh, state offices were in Lansing, Michigan. So anyway, so I, I got a quick uh, course on uh, all the things I was doing wrong because he, 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 uh, he was, today I think they'd throw you in jail and, and, and ask questions later. But in those days, um, he realized pretty quickly that I was just a, a unsophisticated uh, uh, kid trying to do the best I could. Anyway, I uh, cleaned up my act and ultimately became um, uh, a part of a, 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 a business board that was involved with the Securities Bureau. And I, I was always sort of a, a very good example after that. Um, but, you know, you make mistakes. And, and uh, when you start out, uh, I was very naive in many areas. And, um, I, you know, I don't know if it'd be, if the same things happen today, it might be more difficult. I think it is just more uh, sophisticated today. But, um, you know, you get through those things. And uh, that my, my uh, legal and accounting are, are uh, always expensive. So you don't, you don't want to, you don't want to put the money out to do any more than you have to, uh, as you're getting started. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, uh, when you talk about being naive, um, you know, it, it has nothing to do with age. 
because the when you start a business or you're thinking about starting a business, even if you're older, you can be naive. You don't know what you don't know, right? And um, and so, what is your advice on in you know at Lift Fund, for example? Um, I've always you know as a not for profit organization, I don't own Lift Fund, even though I'm the first employee of Lift Fund, and I found you know help found that Lift Fund. <laughs> Uh, really, the owners of this organization are my volunteer board members, and so um, I've got what fifteen of uh, of uh, fifteen bosses that I report to, and uh, but it's been crucial that I have those fourteen people that have the same passion and believe in the same thing of our mission and our vision. Uh, so that has been my example, my you know example, and my experience, I should say of surrounding myself. Have you had that, you know, did you surround yourself with people as well? Absolutely. Um, I, I have had um, numerous mentors and uh, people who um, uh, were important in my life uh, and um, uh, with good and bad experiences uh, in terms of how, how helpful, but I've always uh, had private boards, even though my companies are private, we, we have, an outside board. Um, you know, before we started this, you and I were talking about Herb Kelleher. Uh, Herb, uh, who started Southwest Airlines, was not only on my board, but he had gone off my board. And in the mid-1980s, when I was in real financial trouble, and I, I was in huge financial trouble, Herb picked up the phone and called me and said, let's go to dinner. And so, you know, there are people out there who just are really good, nice, caring people, and certainly he was one, uh, that um, make a difference in the world. And and, uh, and then hopefully uh, when you're able, you give back and do it the other way. Which you are, by the way. I, I hope so. So, the you know, I've, I've spoken to some uh, small businesses, you know, that we work with, um, and sometimes they don't necessarily take advice. And I've said to them, be careful. Uh, because you need to listen to what people are saying about your product or your service or something, because if, if you don't listen and, and, and pivot or maneuver, you know, go through that, you're not going to be as successful as you could be. So, you know, I, I hope that, you know, that's you hopefully we're giving that message to our listeners today that we do need other people. And yeah, maybe you are not going to have a pain board, but you can have um, people that surround you that care about you and care about your, your vision. And, and, and the other thing I would I agree with all of that, I would also say if you're in a time when things are going well, that doesn't mean you're so smart and that everything's going to continue to always go well. Things go in cycles. And um, uh, if they're going, if you're, if you're in a challenging time, seek help and be transparent and don't be uh, um, a questioning of uh, whether um, you want to share information. I, I think uh, people should share and be realistic about where they are. And if it's a good time, enjoy it, but, but don't get confused and think that uh, you deserve it all the time because it, it won't, it won't last like that. And uh you know, business is all about, as you said, pivoting and, and changing with the times. And uh, uh, you don't control everything. You you just do the best you can. That's right. You know, Craig, we have some uh, questions from our audience. But before we go there, um, we always like to bring in the voice 
of a small business person that, you know, that we work with. So um, I'd like to share the voice of um, Alicia Nichols. Uh, she's from Dallas and uh, her company's name is You, uh, you, know, you know You Fit. And she'll tell you a little bit about uh, about what she does and how she does it in her startup business, actually. So let's listen. My name is Alyssa Nichols. I am the owner of You Know Your Fit Studio. We have been in business since 2015. I specialize in personal training and small group training, as well as prenatal and postpartum fitness. In the months before the pandemic and the shutdown hit, my business was pretty stable. I had been experiencing some level of profit growth each year, and I was really just looking forward to continuing to capitalize on the growth that I had already established. And so when things shut down, I almost immediately just kind of went into uh, this mode of, okay, what, how can I transition my business to where it's still functioning? I started to design more online programs, uh, so like FaceTime uh, workouts, Zoom workouts, those type of things. Um, I was really surprised to lose any clients. I pride myself on creating space for my clients to be vulnerable and be themselves. Um, and so I think we've just established a certain level of trust. So I was able to switch all of my personal training clients over to virtual sessions as well as my group training. And I think because the pandemic and the shutdown created such a storm of uncertainty for people just in their day-to-day -day lives, I think people were also just searching for some normalcy. They were searching for just something that felt like what they had been doing. And I was able to provide and continue to hold that space for them as they kind of traverse when um, I finally got everything switched over, I definitely still had a need for um, just equipment, tripod to hold, whether it was my phone or um, my iPad so that I could be hands-free during workouts. I needed to upgrade my Zoom um, account so that I could have sessions that were an hour long um, and those type of things. Receiving that grant from Lift Fund really helped uh, me be able to just have the basic things that I needed to do my job. I tell everyone <laughs> that I possibly can about Lift Fund because the process even back in 2017 when I had no clue what I was doing and I was trying to get funding for my first location, it was made exponentially easier. So I'm just really thankful that you all exist and y'all have a heart to help uh, small businesses because it's definitely paid off. So, Craig, she kind of went over a lot of the stuff that you and I have been talking about, don't you think? Absolutely. And and uh, very uh, exciting story and uh, shows uh, staying positive and pivoting and uh, doing all the things to adapt to uh, the circumstances. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a real yeah. gratifying uh, story. So let's turn now to the questions. I believe there's some in the chat room. And um, Dan, will you be? Uh, yes, ma'am. Okay. So first question to you, Craig, uh, one of our viewers has asked, can you reflect on the current labor market shortage and the challenges it may be posing to small businesses in particular? Yeah, it's just so bizarre. Um, uh, I, you know, policies, that's, uh, uh, it's difficult when you're in the abstract uh 
to, to, to try to create a policy. And I think uh, the federal government um, created the added unemployment benefits, uh, which I believe go through September for many people. And my gut feeling is that a lot of people are uh, making enough money on that, that between that and the costs of childcare and the costs of transportation to come <clears throat> to and from work, they're just not looking for a job yet. And it's a bizarre uh, thing when you have uh, roughly 8 million plus people that were employed, additional people that are still on unemployment that are new because of the pandemic, but are not rushing into the uh, job force. Uh, there are workers for um, hospitality industry is having trouble finding workers, restaurants. Um, it's a bizarre situation. Uh, hopefully um, it'll start to ease, but if it goes, I mean, it's just, it's really a, a very sad situation. It's in some cases, people will pay more because of that, um, but it's hard to pass on everything. It may cause uh, inflation uh, for a time. Um, but I, I, uh, I think it's a, it's one of these very unpredictable uh, things. I don't think anyone would have guessed this kind of problem, but it's a, it is a serious problem. Thank you. Can both of you reflect on, tell us a little bit about Revive Dallas. Uh, Janie Liffon has a role in that, of course, and Craig, you've had a role as well. Can you discuss that? Well, Revive Dallas was uh, an effort uh, by um, uh, parts of uh, the private sector in Dallas to help smaller businesses. And um, when I, it wasn't our idea, but it was an idea that when I first heard about it, we were uh, very, very uh, excited to, about it and, and made a, uh, uh, an early uh, contribution. Uh, uh, and to implement a, a program like that, you really need uh, talent and people that know what they're doing. So that's where Lift Fund came in and uh, uh, really partnered to, to make it happen. But it, the intent uh, was a, a $5 million fund to help uh, small businesses uh, quickly. Uh, and um, I, I think it's it's been one good step in the right direction. Yeah. It's a great example of a public-private partnership. And, um, you know, it's ironic, but true that it's by borrowing money and paying it back on time is how we increase our FICO scores. And so um, this program, uh, it starts as sort of like a PPP loan, right? It starts as a loan, but if you accomplish what you said you were going to accomplish, it can be, it turns into a grant. And so, um, but by them having a loan in the first place and lift fund reporting back to the credit bureaus, uh, their timely payments and so on, then uh, they're able to increase their credit scores. And so um, I always make fun of ourselves in terms of, you know, marketing 101 says you want to keep your best customers because you've worked so hard to get them. You want to keep them. At Lift Fund, we want to lose our best customers because at the end of the day, we want them to graduate from a not-for-profit organization like Lift Fund and go into the traditional financial institutions. So programs like Revive have been very instrumental in helping not only uh, the economy, but also the small businesses and Lift Fund to be able to reach more people. So, so thank you for this great partnership. 
We're running out of time, Dan. Do you have another question or do we have time for one more question? Time for two more questions, Janie. Um, one is, uh, what is the total amount that Live Fund has lended in its 27 years, roughly? <laughs> Most of have $500 million is, a, is about the money that we've dispersed over the 27 years. Uh, and, um, you know, we're not a bank, so we've been able to get that money and uh, from investors and donors and be able to revolve it. So, um it's just amazing. Little did I know, talk about being naive, Frank, you know, when I started back in 1994, if I, you know, we started out with a $50,000 grant for operations and $125,000 in a loan pool for, for lending. And now we're operating budgets like 18 million or something like that. So hopefully, hopefully that answers your question, Dan. Thank you. But by the way, in terms of being naive, I think if, if, if we all know too much, we wouldn't start a lot of businesses. If you knew, how, if you knew all the things that we were going to hit you, you might not have done everything you've done. So it's, it's good to not know sometimes. That's right. I agree. Last question, Craig, Dan. Yeah. Craig, uh, we're hearing uh, and we have heard for a number of years about companies moving to Texas, large and small. Um, do you have any views on that or why that is? Well, I... Um, uh, we're in the wine business in California, and uh, I have a lot of um, uh, good friends in California and a lot of uh, elected officials uh, that I know. And um, But I got to tell you, there's a big difference between the business climate in California and the business climate in Texas. And um, it's a pleasure to be a Texan. It's a pleasure to... Uh, have a business uh, climate like we have in Texas. And um, both from a tax standpoint, there's encouragement, but also from just a business climate standpoint, Texas, in my view, is in for great growth over the next uh, probably 20 years. As far as I can see, I'm just very, very excited and bullish on Texas. And I think uh, a lot of other States are going to be sending uh, some of their finest to us, and we'll take them, and um, it's going to be a, a great thing. So I'm, I'm very bullish on Texas. Well, what a great way to end our hour together, Craig. Thank you very much for ending such a positive note, and I uh, really appreciate the time, especially since it's now 7 o'clock in, <laughs> uh, in Hawaii. So thank you. Safe travels back to Dallas. And thank you for all that you've done uh, for our communities. Thank you, Janie. And thank you for LiftFund. It's a gift to so many. Thank you. And thanks to our viewers today. And I especially want to thank our staff at LiftFund, uh, Martha Zurete and Dan Yoxel, who have been the shepherds of this event today. And so thank you both for putting this on. We want to express our gratitude uh, also to our underwriter uh, sponsors, which is Wells Fargo and especially today's sponsor, Veritex Bank. So there's plenty of work to be done uh, in support of small businesses. We invite you to join our movement. Uh, at Lift Fund, we have opportunities for donors, investors, and volunteers to assist Lift Fund and the people that we serve, because as we all want to do, we want to level that financial playing field. Thank you all very much. Thank you. In 1994, Lift Fund CEO and founder Janie Barrera opened the first Lift Fund office in San Antonio with three employees. 
Today, Lyft Fund has offices in 14 states that provide a pathway to financial success for entrepreneurs. I'm Mario Munoz, reporting for the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service.